please listen to the disclaimer at the end of this episode. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast, Episode 11, Health Insurance Benefits and Flexible Spending Accounts. I'm looking forward to having some real talk with some real folks. Hey, this is Greg with the Suburban Folk Podcast. Our topic today is going to be health insurance and a specific focus on consumer-driven products that go along with health insurance plans like flexible spending accounts, health reimbursement accounts, and health savings accounts. Joining me today is my buddy, Scott. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Greg. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, and thanks for taking some time to explore these topics with me. And you have a lot of years in the industry, actually. We met working in the same health insurance world. And in particular, I know that you have uh, managed an operation in these consumer-driven products with the flexible spending accounts. Do you want to talk a little bit about your background in the health insurance industry and in particular with the flexible spending accounts? Uh, Sure. So I have been in the healthcare industry for the last 20 years, um, and I work for a large uh, healthcare insurance carrier. Um, And and within my experience is primarily operations, building benefit plans, enrolling members, issuing ID cards. But for nine of that 20 years, I also managed uh, operations that administer consumer-driven health plan products, such as uh, Greg referenced in the beginning, flexible spending accounts, health reimbursement arrangements, and health savings accounts, um, and administering that for members who elected those uh, products product components to go along with their healthcare coverage. Did you find when you were getting involved with those products that people understood what they are and use them to a max benefit? Because I would say when you first got involved, they were what, maybe five years in as far as being a mainstream offering for employer-based plans? I would say yes. They, the the uh, the health savings account, the HSA, was really one of the first consumer products uh, that uh, kind of evolved. Um, and uh, I would agree when I first got involved. Actually, I didn't know a lot about the products as at all when I took over the operation. So I certainly learned a lot in a short amount of time. But what I found was I found them to be very interesting and and what the products did and, and how they helped employees and their families with their, you know, healthcare coverage helped defray the cost of their out-of-pocket expenses. So, but what I found is most people, including employer groups and, and brokers who, you know, really facilitated arranging, you know, working with a, a employers to purchase healthcare coverage for uh, employees and their families didn't really have a good understanding of the product. So it's it definitely in the beginning, um, it was certainly, they were new, but I think over time still people don't really realize what they are. Um, and when they're offered, I think that people probably don't take advantage of them because I think what they don't know, they kind of fear, right? They kind of stay away from, I don't know what that involves. It sounds scary. So they want to stay with what they're comfortable with or tried or true. Um, versus kind of exploring how these products can really save them money uh, in the long run. And I think the idea from the insurance plan perspective is if we have these types of accounts available and put some of the responsibility on the consumer, then maybe they'll be a little more conscious about what things cost and where the money is going and coming from. Unfortunately, with today's state of health insurance, where it seems like every year for folks with their open enrollment, you're either seeing a premium increase or a higher deductible or things like that. So I think that's one way that it's become more prevalent. But that was one of the ideas when these were first introduced, right? That the consumer would be helping, if you will, manage costs because they have a little more uh, insight into where their dollars are going. Is that a, a fair way to categorize their, their uh, introduction into the market? Uh, yes, I would say that's fair. So over time, when I first got into the, the business and the business of healthcare, uh, HMOs were really prevalent at that time. Um, and again, from an HMO, you enrolled in an HMO and you had typically very low co-pays, you know, uh, primary care physician, 
office visit copay. You might have had a separate copay for a specialist visit and perhaps copays for pharmacy, generic versus brand. Um, and so, you know, if you weren't feeling well or whatever the case may be, you go to your doctor and at most you might have a 10 or $20 out of pocket, pocket expense. Uh, the same, if you went to the emergency room, you might have a higher copay of a hundred dollars. Um, and so people didn't really give a lot of conscious thoughts when they were seeking medical services because, um, you know, they were paying so little out of their pocket because, you know, I pay a premium, right? I'm paying a premium for my healthcare coverage. And so that, you know, gives me that uh, coverage. And so if I'm not feeling well or whatever the, whatever the situation may be, I want to go seek medical care and, and, and really don't think about the cost. And over time, as medical costs have increased, employers have really had to look for a way to help, Make healthcare um, affordable for them to, you know, continue to cover their their employees at large. And so, over time, as you know, kind of moved away from the HMO to more of a, a PPO preferred provider organization, where you have a deductible and and or even higher co pays, where again members are taking very more of the the responsibility for the cost of their medical care these products were introduced to help them defray those costs uh, either by the employer helping to fund their health care through a through an hra um, or allowing the employee to uh, save money towards their out-of-pocket expenses um, but get a t- take a tax advantage um, particularly with the uh, fsa and the hsa yeah and that's a good segue into the health plans themselves. We wanted to get this recorded now because a lot of folks that were working for employers who have a January 1st open enrollment are likely having to pick those uh, benefits right now. So hopefully some of the information we go over is helpful for folks that are still in that period. So you mentioned HMO, and I think for most people, that's where their starting point is of what health insurance is. Um, like you mentioned, it's uh, mostly your, your co-pays. Um, typically you're not dealing with deductibles. So let's try to break that down a little bit. Um, the, the main thing I think that people talk about for an HMO is it's only your in-network doctors, meaning they have to have a contract with whatever insurance company your employer is using. So um, if they're not in-network, then they don't have a contract and get no benefit from it. Um, and then if they are in-network, it would be the negotiated rate. And typically uh, the patient cost is going to be in the form of co-pays. I think in recent years, again, as we tend to see less rich benefits uh, on, on the patient side, um, there can be deductibles, uh, maybe even co-insurance, but historically that's not as common. Um, and then, and, and there's certainly much less than the other couple of, uh, insurance products that we're going to talk about. Anything else that comes to mind for the HMO that that's sort of a staple of that type of product? Again, I know I think you covered it. So, you know, co-pays and, and again, as HMOs evolved, the, you might see a, a $100 copay or maybe even a, a slow deductible one, uh, some higher cost service like inpatient. Um, but essentially is if you say a network um, and, and uh, see a participating provider physician or hospital you know your your out of pocket is traditionally a, some sort of copay so it tends to be more predictable i think for what people are used to with insurances which i think is a theme again as we shift over to talking about the spending accounts that are available uh, predictability uh, is attractive <laughs> for for when people are budgeting and maybe is again one of the reasons why they tend to get uh, turned off by or, or don't want to engage in some of the other products. But as we'll discuss, you can actually combine, even if you go into an HMO that has some of that predictability, um, a flexible spending account or again, some of the other arrangements um, with the other types of products that are available. So I, I understand why people go there, especially if you have certain known health costs that are going to come up. Um, and then, you know, depending on your family situation or just own risk tolerance um, would, would play a part into whether or not you're going into one of these options. But and more and more, I think people find that they won't, don't even in all cases have an HMO product that's 
going to be offered by their employer, depending on the size of the employer, uh, the way that they've structured their plans. But um, it is, I think, sort of the most straightforward version of a health insurance plan. And next is the PPO, which you mentioned. Um, I did the HMO. So Scott, why don't you go ahead and uh, give some of the high level characteristics of a PPO plan? Sure. So a PPO plan, typically also referred to as a preferred provider organization, is really a health plan that offers the the consumer an in and out of network um, benefit. So one of the constraints of an HMO is that you have to see participating providers who are participating with the insurance carrier that you're insurance is offered through and so you don't have a lot of choice you know you may have you know if your employer offers you know one carrier a this year and your doctor's participating with them and they switch to another carrier for the new plan year and your doctor may not be participating in, in unless you're going to completely pay out of pocket for your, those services you're really restricted to who you can see and, and although you know again most hmos have a pretty broad network but in my experience i have seen that happen where uh you know uh, members are coming on for the first time with an insurance carrier and the physician they've seen for 20 years is not part of that network and so they have to make a you know a, a pick a different doctor. And so the preferred provider organization really allows more of a flexibility. So if your doctor, your hospital, or your outpatient service center doesn't participate and you want to choose to go out of network and pay higher out of pocket, you can do that. And then Typically with PPOs, you see more of a deductible and co-insurance benefit arrangement versus a copay. So you may have a $500 deductible that you, you know, so your first $500 of approved services, uh, you pay out of pocket. And then once you meet that deductible, uh, then it kick, the co-insurance kicks in. So then services after that, the, your insurance carrier will pay typically 80% of the cost and then you pick up the other 20. So PPOs give you a little bit more flexibility, and then plus with the uh, deductible added on, it, it uh, may come at a lower premium, perhaps, uh, than the HMO. Um, so it, it does afford that more of a flexibility. Yeah, and some things I think that's worth breaking down with those costs and how that can work, because people's eyes sometimes can glaze over, I think, when you get into deductible versus coinsurance that in-network versus out-of-network. Um, with the deductible, that's part one, if you will, to be met uh, before the benefits start to kick in with the exception of you know your, your annual visit. And there may even be some other things that are part of the Affordable Care Act that are required to be covered. For example, I, th- I know for you know the women's exams, um, there are certain ones that would be covered regardless of the type of plan that you have. But generally speaking, for any other sick visit or anything that you have, um, you're going to um, either have a copay there or it would go to your deductible. But after that, people should just be aware that there can be a coinsurance. Like you said, uh, I, I agree that uh, 80% is what is covered and then you still have a 20% after that that has to get paid. So when you're looking at your maximum out of pocket, you need to make sure that you understand that it's not just the deductible and then that's it. It is very possible that there's a coinsurance that's going to apply to certain services. Inpatients, probably the um, most straightforward example where that's going to happen before um, it gets covered at 100%, which again, going back to that member uh, responsibility, need to be aware of that. And also, again, if you have some of these other spending accounts that can help ease that payment. And something else I think that people don't necessarily realize when you talk about the out-of-network benefits is because they're out-of-network, they do not have a contract with your health plan. So the payment is based on what's called usual and customary. Uh, So real-world example, let's say you go to the doctor and they charge you $200, but your insurance says the usual and customary is $100. So let's say it's that 80-20 split. Well, in this example, they would be paying $80. You would be responsible for the $20 and that 20%, but also that additional $100, you know, if they did charge you $200 in my example, um, because they don't have a contract with your health insurer. They're not bound by those particular billing practices. Um, so that, I think that's just something to be aware of, that it is 
definitely an advantage to have some of those out-of-network benefits. As you mentioned, if you're seeing a particular physician um, that you want to continue to see, or if you have you know a certain issue going on where um, somebody that is in network maybe really, really trusts somebody that's out of network and things like that. So you do have some coverage, but um, there are definitely limitations to that. Um, and, and one other, I think, that maybe we take for granted working in the industry uh, is there are separate deductibles and coinsurance there as well. So um, it's not a combination of those deductibles. They will operate completely separate from each other. Um, Any other thoughts on what other considerations may pop up as far as member responsibility that uh, people sometimes may forget about? Uh, yeah, so to your point, so again, separate deductibles uh, and often different coinsurances. So if you go out of network, um, once you meet your deductible, uh, the co- you know the your your health insurance may pick up sixty percent of the usual and customary, and then you're responsible for that forty percent. Then plus anything above the UNC that the provider billed. So again, that's something to take into consideration. And then uh, another thing with PPOs that uh, people may not be aware of, if you go to a hospital, uh, emergency room, outpatient setting, a lot of, they call them the pearl providers, the the pathologist, the ER doc, the uh, anesthesiologist, um, the um, labs, and the radiology, oftentimes those uh, services that operate within a hospital um, kind of operate independently and often don't have any type of contract with the insurance carrier. And so they, you know, they will bill your insurance and the insurance will apply the out of network, you know, benefit um, and pay the, you know, if you've met your deductible, have already met your deductible, they may pay 60% and then you'll get uh, billed the balance, uh, the balance, um, but typically, if you see uh, go to a participating hospital or participating uh, service, you know, like an outpatient service center, and are seen by a non-participating provider, if you get balance billed uh, and call the insurance company, then they'll go ahead and pay the balance because they they're holding you the member harmless. But sometimes people aren't aware of that, and they get the bill and, and they'll pay the difference. So that's probably a consideration with a, a PPO if you are. Uh, staying in network for for services you may be seen by a non-participating provider who will balance bill you uh, because again they're not contractually bound by the payment your carrier makes um and but if you call your carrier they'll typically then they'll pay that balance for you because they're holding you harmless because you followed the plan and went in network i would second that that is a great tip (laughs) that people are probably not aware of and let's be honest if it's in especially if it's in an inpatient setting uh, the last thing on your mind is when somebody enters the room, hey, are you participating with my network? So it's extremely frustrating, I think, when you see that bill come through. Or when that anesthesiologist is about to put you under. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the last thing you're thinking about is, are you participating with my insurance? And the, the, probably not, no. So. Yeah, so if someone finds themselves in that frustrating situation, just like you mentioned, yeah, call your insurance up and granted you shouldn't have to deal with it. We won't go into, you know, what all could (laughs) make the health insurance system better, but that is definitely an insider tip to uh, don't just assume that you do owe that cost. Uh, Talk to your health insurance carrier there and uh, make sure they understand uh, the scenario and more often than not, they will not hold you accountable because of all the reasons we mentioned. You're just trying to get better. You're not controlling who's coming into the room. You're you're leaving that to uh, the hospital or you know the the whatever provider that you're at. So I would again, I would definitely second that. Um, moving on to what has become way more common, I think, as a, an offering from the employers are the qualified high deductible plans. And these are, in most cases, similar to a PPO, but um, they, as the name indicates, would have a higher deductible. Um, That deductible needs to be met for nearly every service uh, before you would see the benefits start to pay out, again, with that exception that I mentioned, with uh, your annual visits, which is part of the Affordable Care Act. Um, So the best example of a difference between 
a more typical PPO versus these high qualified plans is when you would go in for a sick visit or if you go see a specialist, um, you know, historically people are used to um, a specialist copay or you're just your PCP, um, your primary care physician copay uh, with the high deductible plans. It's going, even those services are going to go to that deductible. And I think that, again, unfamiliarity is where people can tend to get scared at uh, what can be an unpredictable cost uh, that whenever you go, it's not, I pay my 10, 20, 30, whatever your copay happens to be. It's going to be um, the contractual rate with that doctor, or again, if it's out of network, it's basically what they bill altogether. And I think the other thing that is kind of foreign to people is around the pharmacy, which Typically, when you go uh, to go pick up your prescription, you've got uh, your generic level copay, you've got your brand level copay, and then your your off um, your non formulary copays, and, and so on. There can be different tiers, but with these high uh, high deductible plans, they go right to the deductible as well before you then get to a copay based um, payment system. So um, th- those are the main differences that go along with these high deductible plans? Again, Scott, keep me honest here. Is there anything else that I missed? I know we talked before uh, recording this about the um, limits and admittedly, I don't have it in front of me. I don't know if you happen to have yours. So uh, anything else around these high deductible plans? Uh, I, I, you, know, you got it right. So for the high deductible health plans, preventative service. So you, again, a, a manual physical is usually is covered at a hundred percent by your carrier. There's no out of pocket because again, part of uh, the healthcare system today is uh, employers. You know, a lot of wellness, right? They want to incentivize you as uh, to you know to stay healthy. And so part of that is, you know, if you have to pay a deductible or pay out of pocket to go have a wellness exam, you're, you're probably not going to do it because, you know, our, our, I guess our culture is you go to the doctor when you're sick, not when you're well. So uh, that's part of the incentive to do that. Um, and from a high deductible uh, and very similar to a PPO, you know, I'll go back to the PPO for just a second because oftentimes a PPO will also have co-pays for like a, a doctor's visits or prescriptions. And you'll see more of the deductible co-insurance for services like a uh, outpatient inpatient but for the high deductible um, the limits are for um, 2019 the minimum uh, deductible was $1,350 for an individual $2,700 for a family and that goes to $1,400 for individual and $2,800 for a family in 2020 so for a qualified high deductible if the uh, deductible is lower than that then it doesn't qualify to be a qualified high deductible, then it would be a regular PPO. One thing to touch on that you just mentioned that we didn't hit as well for the PPO is that individual versus family deductible. And I think that's also something that people can get a little confused with. Um, so individual deductible, if I'm a family of four and I have a procedure that I hit my deductible, let's, let's stick with the 1300. Um, then my spouse goes in for a procedure that's going to hit that same deductible. Um, you just because you hit the individual deductible on my service, um, there's still that family deductible that has to be met. Now, continuing this scenario, um, in most cases that I've seen, I don't know if there even is an exception. The family deductible is basically twice the amount of what the individual deductible is. So if you have, um, more than two people on the policy, then uh, it, whatever else happens, then you're, you're into the co-insurance regardless of who the person is. Um, but up until that point, it is at that individual level um, with the cap of the family deductible. So that can sometimes get a little bit confusing, I think, uh, as far as understanding the difference between the individual and the family. And the co-insurance works the same way, that they tend to be um, the family is, is double the amount of what the individual one is. And then um, it, whatever combinations you have to get to that point, or if an individual gets to the individual point, they would see the benefits start to pay out. So um, I think that is worth making sure people understand that as they're adding up what their potential cost could be. 
Uh, yes. Yeah, so the, and I think with the PPO and the, and the qualified high deductible, again, that's where the consumerism comes into play because you, as the, as the consumer, you really have to pay attention to what you're paying out of pocket and, and, you know, whether you're receiving your explanation of benefits, you know, in the hard copy in the mail or you're receiving them electronic, electronically through a member portal, you'll want to pay attention to what you're, you know, is being applied to your deductible, what you're paying out of pocket. Um, so you can track that sort of thing, because again, uh, you know, doctor may bill you for something that was applied to your deductible and, you know, because sometimes it takes a while for claims to catch up with, you know, and the system to to reflect that you've actually met your deductible. So it's really important to to really track what you're paying out of pocket and, and monitor that because, you know, mistakes will happen or sometimes it's just a timing thing. Um, and again, a provider may bill you when um, it's, it's just a timing thing when the, a claim. So. So I would argue that we've made the case for why these spending accounts can be useful with the deductibles, the co-insurance, the co-pays. Uh, we didn't even hit uh, vision plans and dental plans, uh, but the way the current health insurance uh, products are going, there are definitely these combinations of uh, patient responsibilities that then brings these spending accounts into the picture. So moving on to those particular offerings. The three that uh, I am aware of are the flexible spending account, um, the health reimbursement account, and the HSA. I thought maybe we would get the health reimbursement account out of the way first, uh, just because that you only have that available if your employer elects that type of a plan. It is very specific that um, it has to be an HRA-based plan it is a plan that it is employer dollars that are put into your account that you can use. Um, and there are some other options as well. Um, Scott, do you want to go ahead and, and give some additional nuances to that HRA plan? Sure. So for, for the HRA, um, as Greg said, uh, when employers are offering a PPO plan, and again, as, as we've evolved, I think, uh, in, in product offerings or in benefit offerings in you know, 10 years ago, uh, your employer may have offered you an HMO product, a PPO product, uh, and then paired it with an HRA. Cause again, to help, help their employees absorb that out of pocket expense that they may not previously have had to deal with. Um, so from an HRA, the, the employer's funding that. So they may, they may elect a plan that has a, a uh, let's just say a $2,000 individual deductible, a $4,000 family. So if you're used to an HMO and only paying co-pays, now you're faced with healthcare coverage where you're responsible for the first $2,000 if you're an individual and up to $4,000 if you have a family. And so the HRA dollars helps kind of defray that out of pocket. And so the employer funds that. So they may uh, offer $1,000 for an individual and $2,000 for the family from HRA funding. So what will happen is you go to have a medical service and uh, deductibles applied, the claim comes in and, and the member responsibility is $500. So um, when that comes claim comes in and you are responsible for the five hundred dollars. The HRA will pick up that five hundred dollars, so you don't have to pay that out of pocket. Your employer has funded that, um, so that's the benefit of the HRA. Now with the HRA, um, it's again it's employer funded. So if you are a relatively healthy person and you don't you know have very many services um, and only use $200 of your HRA and, and the 800 left over at the end of the benefit year, the employer keeps up. That's their money. Um, so, uh, so the risk to the employer is, is little because again, they're helping fund it, but if you don't use it, then they, they save it. Is there a rollover for HRAs? I know there is for FSAs, but it's been a little while since I've dealt with the HRA. So I'm honestly not sure if there still is. And what I mean by rollover for folks that may not be aware is when that plan year ends um, and you go into the next year, there are certain accounts that um, you can have a dollar amount uh, at last check for the FSA. It's $500 that then can be rolled over and used for the next year. Do you, do you know if that same rule applies or, or 
for how that works on the HRA side? So in the HRA, the employer is part of the structure of the HRA and how much they want to fund. They also can elect to roll over a certain amount into the next plan year. So I'll just stay with the individual amount, uh, freeze of, you know, explaining. So again, if, if the, if you have an individual deductible 2000, the employer is funding a thousand and you only use again, 200, there's 800 left over. They may roll that whole 800 over into the next year, or they may roll 500 over. So you can kind of build on that. So then the next year, let's just say they roll over $500 of any unused HRA. So then the next year, you have $1,500 available, and your deductible stays at 2000 Now, you know, as you're accessing services and incurring cost, now you have $500 additional in that plan year to, to defray your out-of-pocket. Right. So the very basic math that I would encourage folks to do is see what the amount your employer is putting into that HRA, consider it for what your deductible is, and then when the benefits would start paying out, um, you know, compared to what your other options might be. Um, if you are relatively healthy and you know, the situation of your family overall, and you know, it might make sense more so than if your employer has an HMO, for example, um, that if you've got those HRA dollars and just continuing the theme that may seem a little scary when you're faced with a deductible rather than just the more standard uh, co-pays, um, it can work out to, you know, for example, okay, this equals this many doctor's visits in a year before I would even be spending my own money versus the reimbursement. Um, so every plan is very unique, but uh, I think that is at least an exercise that's worth doing when your employer's open enrollment happens and you're figuring out how each of the plans would fit into your family's particular situation. Um, and, and I think that's probably a first place to start of how much money um, are they putting in, compare that to the deductible, then see what the gap is of how much of your own money <laughs> still uh, would be needed to fulfill the deductible and then the benefits start kicking in after that. And then I would say part of that calculation is also looking at the difference between the premium you would pay for an HMO plan for an individual or family coverage uh, versus what it would cost for the PPO because uh, typically you're going to find that the premium that you would pay per paycheck is going to be less for a PPO versus an HMO because when you're electing the PPO, you're assuming more of the cost share. Um, and defraying some of the risk on the employer side. So if you factor that difference in over, you know, typically 26 pay periods a year, you all might find that that savings in the uh, difference between the premium, if you were to have to pay out of pocket, may also help offset that cost where if you actually had to, you know, uh, use up $2,000 of your deductible, it's, it may be less out of pocket than your expecting when you compare the cost of the premium. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Premium plus deductible plus the other possible out-of-pockets uh, minus the amount that you're getting in in particular in uh, with the HRA, the money that's coming in from the employer. Uh, absolutely. And as far as when you have access to those funds, when does an employer typically um, put the money into your account? Is it all at once or is it more like the other options that we're going to talk about here shortly where per paycheck a certain amount is going in and then you have it available at certain times? That's the employer's choice when they're setting up the benefit. My, in my experience, most of them make the HRA funding available first dollar, meaning the first time you incur an expense uh, that complies to your deductible, the HRA is going to pick that up. But there's there's various options. Um, the employer may require you, uh, the member to pay the first five hundred dollars of the the deductible, and then they'll pick up the other thousand, and then um, and then the the employee picks up the 500 on the back end. Um, but typically it's, it's first dollar. Okay. Again, if you're enrolling in an HRA, if your employer is offering it that, those are good questions to ask. And typically that's outlined in the, in the benefit offering so you can make an informed decision. Yeah. And, and I think, especially if it does end up being on the front end, that should help with just budgeting in general for the, if it's all available right then, um, you're not having to worry about when you have a particular doctor's visit or anything like that. It's just, it's there for the year versus, if it is um, incrementally added through the year, you know, 
something to keep an eye on at least as the year goes through and, and whenever you're using your benefits. I was just going to add another thing to consider with the HRA, um, particularly if the employer offers the rollover. If you're going into year two of your HRA and you know that you have funds available, they're going to roll over. Sometimes those rollover funds aren't available until after the first 60 or 90 days of the year. And that's only to allow claims that you may have incurred at the end of the benefit year to come in and, and be uh processed and paid um, before they roll it over. So if you are planning some type of uh, uh, medical service, um, if you're anticipating will be, you know, apply, have a large out-of-pocket expense initially in the new plan year, you may also want to consider that uh, as you're planning. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, And then before we leave the HRA, actually, I have to tell a quick story for how I use the HRA and at least I practice what I preach. (laughs) Um, One other thing to consider is if you are leaving your employer and there is money on the table, um, that same user applies, except it's going to apply to the last day of coverage of that plan. Um, So whatever dollars available, you can spend. And the HRA has some extra limits, I believe, on what you can purchase um, as compared to the flexible spending account and the health savings account. But there are certain over-the-counter things uh, that, that you can get and then you know check vision, check um, dental and, and see what applies. And actually, when I was leaving a company that uh, Scott and I worked mutually at, um, I was using every dollar that I could. And he um, let me know that he had to have a special meeting about um, the purchasing habits of people that had these accounts to make sure that the amount of things that are being purchased and the frequency, um, if there were supposed to be any limits to that. So <laughs> I uh, ended up getting getting you an extra meeting, I guess, on your calendar for, for my particular situation. But just to show that I practice what I preach uh, as far as using the benefits to their fullest, um, I was definitely doing everything I could because we had that rollover, like you mentioned, that um, from year over year or so. If memory serves, I mean, it was over like a thousand dollars that I had to use, you know, within a month's time. So, um, you know, I would definitely encourage folks to look to see where they can use those dollars if you get to that use it or lose it point. And um, there's a site called fsastore.com um, that is sort of shorthand for the things that can be covered. Um, it's really a great business model for people that are getting to the end of the year, like right now, um, and they're looking to spend those dollars rather than just have them go away. They have all the products that you can be assured will get reimbursed and are part of these types of plans. Um, my trick is go and look to see what they have available uh, that you know would be covered and then go to Walmart, Target, something like that. They typically have the same items cheaper. Um, so you can still get them reimbursed same exact way, um, but you'll know based on a site like that FSA store that they're going to be covered. So you don't buy all this stuff and then you submit it for reimbursement and it doesn't count because I know in the last uh, five to 10 years, there has been um, some ratcheting down on the types of items that you can get reimbursed with these types of plans. Uh, yes, I agree. And also if you ever take notice if you go to Target or Walmart and you buy something, you know, a, a vitamin or Band-Aids, if they're reimbursable from an HRA or an FSA or HSA, there's usually some kind of little indicator after the item on your receipt. Um, and that helps substantiate that, you know, that is a, a, a eligible expense to be reimbursed from an HRA or an FSA, because again, um, part of uh, the administration of these uh, products um, by any administrator, we have to, again, making sure that it meets the requirements for the, for the HRA, FSA, HSA, they have to be uh, qualified medical expenses. And and part of the administration is substantiating that you're actually, you know, the, the money that you're asking to be reimbursed for is a truly a qualified expense. So, and also to Greg's point, um, there's only so many blood pressure meters that one person really needs. Um, <laughs> so I think it's reasonable. We said it was reasonable to have one for your office and one at home, but you probably don't need four or five. So <laughs> I think that's probably a good, a good threshold. I was, I was okay with the outcome. 
<laughs> once, once I received it. So, so yeah, so he had to turn to other things for his Christmas list, shopping list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so moving on to the FSA, I think this is the one that people are probably the most familiar with. FSA standing for Flexible Spending Account. Um, to me, it is the one that can be attached, if that's the right word, to the widest variety of health insurance plans. Uh, for example, you can have an FSA with an HMO. You can have the FSA um, with a PPO. Um, you, you cannot have it with the HSA at the same time. Um, so likely if you're doing one of those high deductible plans, you're, you're probably not going to use it in conjunction. But um, it, it's pretty straightforward in that you elect the amount of dollars that are going into the FSA. It is your money. Um, so you know how it's being allocated. Um, you know, there are certain limits and this is one that, uh, you have all of the dollars available to you as soon as the plan starts, even though you're paying in paycheck over paycheck, which is again, kind of nice from a budgeting standpoint that you don't have to worry about the types of services that you have planned for yourself in the year based on whether or not the funds will be there. They're there all year. Um, but you're not having to uh, preload those funds in to make sure that you have them available. So um, that is the high level for FSA. Again, Scott, what did I miss as far as some of the um, the the highlights of an FSA? So, so for an FSA, so it's a way to save on your taxes because it is really a tax product. So you can uh, put money into your FSA um, tax free. Um, and utilize tax-free. So again, it's all about the consumer right planning, knowing what your, I would say your predictable medical expenses are throughout the year. So if you know that typically, be, you know, for yourself was to stay with the individual, for the example that, you know, you typically spend $500 a year in, in qualified medical expenses, that's a good opportunity to put $500 into a flexible spending account. So as again, Greg said, they take that $500 and they break it out over, again, if you get 26 paychecks a year and they deduct that from your, you know, from your check, but pre-tax. So if your, if your gross is, you know, $2,000 a check, then they're only, you know, they're deducting that portion. So it is a way to save on your taxes and then, um, and have a little bit more money in your, your paycheck. Yeah, agreed. And even just to take that further with the math, because um, I think sometimes people hear pre-tax, but it doesn't really translate for them, sort of hard dollars. That's if I make $50,000 a year and I have uh, a 20% tax rate, that's probably pretty high. But anyway, <laughs> just for the, the ease of the math, um, you know, I can, what that, that, what did you say? $1,000 that, that would come out. Um, Yes. You know, otherwise, if I didn't have that contributing into the pre-tax, um, it, it's only $800 coming out of my paycheck. So um, you're almost getting a discount, if you will, when you consider that for it to get to you after it's taxed um, is actually going to be less money. So there's even a little less hurt from your paycheck when we're talking about those pre-tax dollars. Um, so I, I think that, again, is, is worth using, um, you know, the world. Uh, example, although I think I went way high with, with my example on the tax bracket. <laughs> I try to keep so, my math easy. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. So, um, and, but again, you have to plan carefully with the FSA because if you don't use it, you lose it. Um, your employer keeps it. So it's, it's, you know, from an employer perspective, again, uh, as Greg said, the, if you're going to contribute $1,000 for your benefit year, that $1,000 is available to you day one. So if you, for whatever reason, have a, a high uh, medical expense early on in the plan year in January, you have that money available to you. And it just, again, it can continues to come out of your your paycheck and even amounts throughout the year. Um, and then if if you leave that employer, you don't owe that employer that money back because they haven't had an opportunity to uh, take that money out of your paycheck. But on the flip side, if you put $1,000 in and you have a relatively healthy year and you don't incur the expenses that you anticipated at the end of the year, then they, they can keep that money. Yep, exactly. So that is something to keep in mind. Actually, uh, the first time that I started using an FSA was when um, – we started having kids. So 
we knew that there were going to be those expenses. Uh, so we made sure that we used the flexible spending account for that eventual inpatient stay. And with our second uh, is actually when I was transitioning jobs. So um, I had that extra amount available and a unique situation. I didn't even know this until I was in the situation. Um, you can actually elect to pay for COBRA with a flexible spending account, just like you can with any other of your um, health plans. So it's probably a pretty unique situation where that makes sense to extend the amount of time that you can have your FSA. But for me, it happened to land right when um, we had our second child. So it did make sense to pay the COBRA amount so that um, for that extra month, we could have those claims reimbursed um, and ultimately didn't even pay in the whole amount uh, for the year um, for for that FSA. So we actually did okay there that um, didn't have to pay in for our paycheck the whole year's contribution, but had all the funds available um, for something like, again, birth of a child, where you know there's going to be probably some pretty um, significant expenses for that delivery cost and you know, the subsequent cost from there. And the other things that we mentioned, I think, at the beginning, but uh, Again, there, there are dental services that you can use these flexible spending accounts on vision services. So um, if you wear glasses, for example, um, and you know it's time to pair, um, that's something that you can plan for for the FSA. Um, another example, as far as the limits are concerned, if you have a kid that's getting ready to get braces or something that's going to be pretty expensive and, you know, there's going to be a pretty significant out-of-pocket cost, um, you know, make sure you have those on the radar. And, you know, there are going to be certain years it's very possible that you're going to want to max out the FSA. And to that, Scott, do you have in front of you what the max limits are for the FSA? Uh, yeah, for 2020, it's a, you have to contribute a minimum of $260 and the maximum is 2700 so again, it's a great, uh, a great. I'll call it a tool or a product to elect if you have again predictable historical out-of-pocket expenses. Not only for your medical, again, it covers medical, prescription, dental, vision, and again, if you have a PPO, you know you can put it towards your deductible, co-insurance, and your co-pays. Um, and Greg, I think you said a little bit ago, like uh, with an FSA, you can pair it with an HMO. You can pair it with a, a PPO. You can even pair it with a PPO where the employer offers an HRA. Uh, you just have to be careful there because if, you're, if your employer is offering a PPO and an HRA and you elect that, you can still elect the FSA and, and save some, you know, particularly if you have, you know, out-of-pocket expenses that you want that the HRA will cover all of it. Um, so if your deductible is $2,000 and the HRA is going to cover 1000 but you know historically you spend $1,500 and you want to put $500 into your FSA, the only thing you have to be aware of and understand is how your employer elects to uh, administer those two together because that's considered what's called a stacked product. And most times employers will, you know, stack the HRA first, meaning that all of your eligible expenses um, that are reimbursable from the HRA uh, come out of the HRA first before you can access your FSA. Um, so, again, you just want to be careful um, with how much money you're putting into your FSA. Um, so just something to be aware of. Um, and, again, and also how – because I believe most employers, they probably have some type of a, a TPA or administrator who administrated those products for them. They may have like automatic, uh, like a automatic claims feed that goes from your medical carrier to the FSA administrator, HRA administrator, and they administer the claim. So it kind of takes out the paperwork out of your hands. You may have a debit card. So just something to be aware of when you're going through your benefit offerings, um, with the products that are being offered, but do know that you can pair it with that. Now, Greg, you said you can't pair an FSA with a uh, qualified high deductible health plan and an HSA, which is true, but if your employer will probably offer you a limited purpose um, FSA, which you can use for certain expenses like vision and dental. You can't use it for qualified medical expenses, but you can use it for vision and dental. So there's a lot of options out there, a lot of nuances, and I think that's probably why. 
some people tend to shy away, particularly they have several options, um, like an HMO, which feels like the safe bet, right, um, versus a PPO versus a qualified high deductible. That may be even one of the themes as we're going through these scenarios that similar to investing, if you can't go to sleep at night without worrying about some of these scenarios versus an HMO, that is something to be considered versus the dollars and cents. So we recognize that as far as um, people's choice, uh, what their risk tolerance is. Um, but, you know, if you do have uh, a little higher risk tolerance and, you know, are willing to do this math, you know, you, you probably find that there are some good solutions with these particular plans uh, and, you know, rather than having to sort of go with the traditional HMO, which definitely has the higher premiums and so on. So um, one other thing before we leave the FSA as well, it's, an, it's a different type of FSA, um, but is, is the dependent care FSA. And I think there's also even um, like a parking FSA I, I've read about. And I think one time I've had that offered by an employer. Um, it's, a, it's a low amount, but if you find yourself where your job requires a certain amount um, for to pay for parking if you work in like a downtown area. Um, there's actually available flexible spending account for that. Um, and, and for the dependent care one, um, again, it does depend on your tax situation. If the um, credits that you would get for your number of dependents may equal out more, but I have found that especially if you have kids in daycare, um, it's a $5,000 um, max limit, which anybody that, you know, is paying for some sort of childcare knows you're going to hit that for a kid in, in the year, um, is something to look at, um, definitely to, uh, uh, to be used. And then one other tip as well for, uh, those that have small children, um, diapers are not covered as part of a standard FSA, but, um, overnight, uh, diapers actually are, or overnight underwear, I guess you would call it officially. Um, so when you get your kids past straight potty training, but you know, maybe they're still, um, you know, wetting the bed or, or having issues overnight, um, those, uh, are actually covered. So, um, something else to keep in mind, uh, as far as the types of products that you can get and have reimbursed, we, we've found that to be a useful one for, for using our flexible spending account. And I would say, in addition, on the dependable, dependable, the dependent care FSA. So you're right. The the minimum you can contribute is two sixty. The max is five thousand. I believe the child care credit on your income tax is six thousand. But if you are funding the maximum on your dependent care FSA, the what you save and again because that comes out of your. Um, you know, it's pre-tax, right? So you're not paying taxes on it. What you save in the potential tax savings may actually be more than the $6,000 tax credit. So again, it's it's doing the math. It does require, again, it's kind of that consumer-driven uh, products. Again, you're you're trying, you're taking responsibility and accountability for, you're taking on more of the risk and uh, financial exposure for healthcare. And, you know, so it's, it's you know, and I think that's why people shy away from it. It's almost too daunting or overwhelming to think about. So they don't do it at all. But uh, I think if you think about it and try it, even if you, even if you contribute to uh, at least the minimum or a little bit over and play with it, I think then you can become more comfortable in, in your choices. Yeah. I, I find that for myself. Um, I, I, I don't have an FSA. I never have. I'm a single person, relatively healthy, so I, I, I didn't find that I needed it. And, and for many years, I had a PPO with an HRA, and that certainly um, – the HRA was more than sufficient to cover my out-of-pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just a couple other things on the dependent care FSA. So it's for dependents under 13. Um, but also it can be used for elder care. So if you have a, uh, a disabled adult dependent, um, it, it will pay for daycare there and also elder care. So there's some definite, um, I would do the homework. So if you're in a situation, again, uh, if you have, uh, dependents under 13 or, uh, handicapped adult dependents, um, or elder care that look into it. So it might be an opportunity to, to save some money uh, pre-tax. Yeah, that that's a good one. Uh, 
obviously I've not had to deal with that yet. So I haven't done the research there, but that is an excellent point. Uh, moving on to the HSA, which is the final one that we have on our list. Um, health savings account, uh, high level, like we mentioned, you have to have a qualified high deductible plan uh, to even be eligible for one of these. And that is based on, again, an employer offering. If they don't employ, if they don't offer um, that qualified plan, then you wouldn't have an HSA available to you. Um, when they do offer it, um, there can be combinations of an amount of money that they would actually fund into your HSA. Um, and then you have the ability to fund additional money into the HSA as well. Um, this is the one product that does not have that use it or lose it consideration that we've been talking about. So uh, even if you leave your employer um, or the end of the plan year, that money is still yours in that account. Um, and I believe, I don't have this threshold in front of me, Scott, I don't know if you would. Once you hit a certain threshold, you can even invest that money is my understanding um, into other things other than just sort of a it's essentially like a bank account. Um, so there are definitely more options. Well, let me stop there. Do you know um, what that threshold is or um, what the investment considerations look like? So first of all, HSA is my favorite of the products. And I, I have an HSA myself and I love it. Um, and I'll tell you why here in a minute. But to answer your question, Greg, typically it's the HSA administrator, but typically the threshold is once you have $1,000 in your HSA account, uh, anything over that, as you accumulate over that, you can start to invest. And it's, it's very very similar to a 401k. There's different investment options that you can pick. And so um, to help grow your savings account. Okay. All right. That's a nice round number to remember. And I thought that that was around what I was thinking, but I didn't want to say for sure, but is unique to the HSAs um, in particular. Um, and another thing around the investment part is this is the only uh, savings tool that is pre-tax in and assuming that you are using it for qualified um, purchases is also not taxed when it comes back out. So um, nearly every other investment tool that we talk about, 401k, like you mentioned, uh, is pre-tax going in. But whenever you start to take that money out at retirement, um, it will be taxed at that time versus a Roth when you're paying money uh, or your tax to contribute, but then it comes out and, and uh, is not taxed. This is one where you actually get that uh, tax benefit on both ends. So as an investment tool, it uh, is, is unique in that way, in a good way. So um, I would echo the sentiment that you mentioned that, that this is definitely the, the best product as far as um, just managing your money and, and what, what costs may come up that are unpredictable. Yeah. So, and also, um, talking about it goes in tax-free and it comes out tax-free as long as you're using it for a qualified medical expense but also it goes in tax-free the interest you earn in your investment is also tax-free so if you at the end of the year you earned this to say fifty dollars in interest that's not that's tax-free so it goes in tax-free it grows tax-free and it comes out tax-free um, as long as you're using it for a qualified medical expense and then the icing on the cake is uh, once you turn 65 you can take money out of your hsa for a non-qualified medical expense at no penalty so it's really a great vehicle for retirement savings as well. So uh, again, depending on your financial situation. Um, so again, let's, you know, let me take a step back and talk about the annual limits. So for 2020 uh, for individuals, you can contribute $3,550 um, per year and for family at 7,100. So whatever you elect um, to put into your HSA, your employer will break that out over however number of pay periods you have a year. And so take an even amount out. So let's just say you want to contribute $1,200. So that's going to be, um, oh, I thought I was doing the math easy, um, 26 <laughs> payments. So, um, but it comes out. So, and that, that funding is only available once as it comes out of your paycheck. So it's not, it's not available all upfront, like an FSA. Um, and then some, in, in most cases, I think, Greg, you indicated when we started talking about the HSA, most employers will entice employees to sign up for it by um, 
contributing uh, a nominal amount. I know for my employer in 2020, they're going to fund $500 um, for each employee who elects the HSA. And interestingly enough, this for 2020, a qualified high deductible with an HSA are the only benefits being offered. There's three different levels of deductibles and some maximum out-of-pockets, but that's kind of how health insurance is evolving. And this, again, it varies employer to employer, but I know over the years, you know, um, the, again, the company I've been with for almost 20 years where it went from, you know, you had an HMO and then you might have had an HMO and a PPO and then an HMO, a PPO and a qualified high deductible. And now they're really getting more away to the qualified high deductibles. But if your employer does offer a qualified high deductible, with an HSA, it's really again, you know, each your situation, everyone's situation is different. But if you're relatively healthy, it's a and, and you're you know not too risk adverse. It's a it's a great way to save money towards your healthcare expense. And then again, if depending on your your financial situation, like for myself, I don't touch my money in my HSA. I I, I pay out of pocket. Because I'm using that as a, a long-term retirement savings tool. Um, because again, the money's going in tax-free; it's earning interest uh, tax-free. And again, up until I'm 65, if I really do have a, a need to withdraw money for a qualified medical expense, it comes out tax-free. And then when I get to 65, if uh, I want to take money out, I, I can do that. So great. I think that covers a lot of the HSA considerations that don't already overlap with what we've mentioned with the FSA and HRA as far as, again, pre-tax, um, who's contributing the funds. Uh, again, with the emphasis that it is a type of plan that your employer needs to offer, but if they do, um, see if it makes sense for your investment plan to take advantage of it and just your family's um, you know, health situation for sure. Um, as far as uses are concerned, again, we, we hit a lot of these, especially around the FSA. Are there any that come to mind that we did not mention other uses that people may not necessarily think of for using their spending accounts on? No, I think we hit the part of the salient points. And one last thing I'll say about the HSA, it's portable. So once the money goes into the account, it's yours. So if your employer's contributing money to your HSA and you leave the employer halfway through the year and they've contributed $200, that's your money. Once it goes into your HSA, it's yours. So that's another thing to, to think about. It's portable once it's, it's your savings account. But I think again, I, I think uh, I think we covered all the salients, you know, copays, deductibles, coinsurance, uh, prescriptions, uh, other qualified medical. You know, um, you, you referenced the FSA store. You'd probably be surprised to go out there and see what's reimbursable from an FSA and an HSA. Yeah, yeah, for sure, and I definitely would again recommend that as a resource place to start if nothing else even before you again go to a target or a walmart and like you said um when you buy the, those things you'll see an indicator on your receipt that will show you whether or not or, or be a good indicator that whether or not it would be reimbursed or not but but it's definitely a great place to start online so um i think what we are saying is do your research for the products that you have available for this year's open enrollment. Do the math as we tried to do with some varying levels of success here. Um, and, and then of course, make sure that it fits for your healthcare risk tolerance. Uh, and then again, for, for your own budget. Um, do you think that sums it up pretty well as far as uh, what people should be looking at as they enter this year's open enrollment? Yes. I, and, and the other thing I would look at, particularly if your employer is offering more than one uh, qualified high deductible with different deductible levels, really look at the difference between the premium. Uh, I'll just give my example. So my employer was offering three uh, qualified high deductible health plans with, uh, I think it was like a 1400 a $2,800, and a $3,800 deductible. And I went with the highest deductible because... Um, the difference between the premium, if I'm, you know, if I, again, it's kind of, you know, my risk tolerance. If I, I don't incur any expenses, I save a lot of money in my premium. But if I have to, uh, if I have a lot of expenses and I meet my full deductible, I'm only really paying 
maybe $50 more between my premium and my deductible than if I took the lowest deductible at a higher premium. So I think that's a lot of the things that people don't really look at is the difference between the cost of the premium for the different benefit plans. So when you're doing your math, that's, I think, a really important to look at that as well. Yeah, I would echo that exact sentiment as well. Um, so we know we put a lot of information out here for folks. So if anybody is listening and they do happen to have questions, uh, feel free to reach out uh, through the website at suburbanfolk.com or on Twitter. Uh, the handle is at suburbanfolk. My email is greg at suburbanfolk. We'd be happy to um, put down in, in writing some of the terms that we've talked about here, point you to some other resources online as well so that um, you know folks have things in front of them so they can understand the options that they have. So um, Scott, I really appreciate you taking time. Any last thoughts before we sign off? You know, health insurance is, you know, it's, it's, it's emotional. It's, it's scary. It's a lot to traverse, but I think that the more informed with anything, the more informed you are and making good decisions on your coverage and, uh, and using your resources available. I think probably most employers today have really good resources, um, take advantage of those. And there's just a lot of information out on the internet. So you can get a lot of good information just by plugging in HRA, FSA, or HSA. So there's a lot of information there to help you make those decisions. And I will be sure to provide some of those resources as links uh, on the website when this show gets posted. Scott, appreciate your time, and I will talk to you later. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly shows, please hit the subscribe button. Thank you. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcast network with six other great podcasts. They include The Creative Intuitive, Another Digital Citizen, Random Unnamed Podcast, The Cop End Podcast, Big IQ Podcast, and Real AKA Truth. If you check us out on Twitter, you can see links to their direct pages to see what they're up to. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered benefit or investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of the recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The participants on this podcast are not responsible for any damages or other losses resulting from or related to the information or opinions discussed or their use. Individuals should consider if a benefit or investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial situation with their family and financial professional before executing any decisions.